church family. I hope you're happy today. This is a great, great, great day. It's beautiful outside, a little nippy, beautiful outside. Um, it is, I'd say this every week, but you could be anywhere, but you're here. And for that, I never take that for granted. We should never take that for granted. Thank you for your presence in worship this morning. A um, couple of things just to give you a little bit of information before I, I do preach. I want to remind you that this coming Tuesday, we'll hold a celebration of life uh, service for Sandy Spivey. Dear, dear part of this congregation has been for a long time. He went to be with the Lord last Saturday, uh, late last Saturday. But this coming Tuesday, we will celebrate his life. We'll have a 1 o'clock visitation in the atrium area and a 2 o'clock service in here. So keep that in mind. His service is this Tuesday, 1 o'clock visitation, 2 o'clock a service in here. I also want to just ask you this morning to lift up Gary Bagwell. Gary's having a tough, tough time right now. I, was, I received a text from his dear sweet wife this morning about 4.30, and um, I just know that their hearts are heavy. He is not doing well at all. So please pray uh, for them in this tough time. Um, let's bow our heads and pray. We thank you, O oh God, for the highest privilege we know, and that is to simply be in your presence. Forgive us, Lord, when we take things like that for granted. Thank you for reminding us, dear God, that we're not here because of how good we are. We are. We're here because of how good you are. We're not here because we deserve to be. We're here because you've invited us here. And so come, Holy Spirit, and speak to our hearts now as we... Open ourselves to you. Please help us, O oh God, to remove anything that's distracting us. Help us remove anything that takes our eyes and mind off you because this is for you. Help us to hear you in the very best way we can. In the name of Jesus, we pray it. Amen. <clears throat> This morning's passage of Scripture, um, I told you, I've told you a couple of times now that we're in the season of Lent, and we're talking about the basics of our faith and some of the fundamental truths of our faith, and I want to invite you to continue on that line of thinking uh, as we go through our message today. Our Scripture for today comes from the book of 2 Timothy. There's 1 Timothy, and then of course there's 2 Timothy, and we believe this is the word of our living God. And we believe that it is authoritative for our lives and foundational for our lives. So I want to invite you to stand as we hear it now being read and offer our hearts to God and open to God. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. <clears throat> At no time in history has the book to which religious people pledge allegiance mattered like it does today. At no time in history 
Has the book to which religious people pledge allegiance mattered like it does today? I offer that statement to you in full recognition that it is a loaded one. I offer that statement realizing that particularly these days, it's a tough one to hear at times. I offer that statement in full recognition that it may be heard in any number of ways under the sun, but I believe it's true. Our spiritual lives matter. We attend to our physical lives. We attend to our emotional lives. Our spiritual lives matter. Faith matters. The object of our faith matters. Because what we believe in and those in whom we place belief have a profound impact on us. The book of the Christian is the Bible. That is the book of the Christian. And I also offer that statement knowing that there are some people who see it differently. I'm aware of that. Truth be told, friends, there are some people who attend churches, listen to sermons, sing the music, who believe the Bible is outdated, offers little, if any, relevant information for the current age, and that the Bible is ever-changing. It is based on interpretation It is based on context, and there are some who believe that the Bible is nothing. You need to know that. So I am under no illusion today. On the other hand, I'm not here to defend the Bible this morning. God does not need a defense attorney. God does not need someone who will validate his word because his word has stood the test of time and it is still the number one bestseller of all time. And all of God's people said amen. It stands on its own. A number of years ago, I attended an evangelism conference. And at that conference, I heard George Barna speak. George Barna is the founder of the Barna Institute on Church Excellence. His group, his institute, specializes in researching information on the church and what are the emerging trends of the church. The Barna Institute is the number one polling organization in the world for religious information, the Barna Institute. What do people believe? What causes churches to grow? What causes churches to die? That's what they pay attention to. When I attended that conference, they had recently done their annual poll on the Bible and how well people know and understand the Bible. And since that day, since the day I heard George Barna speak, I have been and I continue to be disturbed about how little people know about the Bible. And how little the church knows about the Bible. So I just want to go ahead and confess to you, I have been on a mission, a personal mission, to see that the people in the church where I serve are not biblically illiterate. Unless they want to be. In fact, this is probably the singular driving reason that you can find me teaching a Bible study on a particular topic or book almost any time. 
And all of it stems back to the impact that the speech George Barna gave had on me. For example, he said, 73% of Americans can't name half of the Ten Commandments. He said, maybe that's why they're breaking all of them. They don't know what they are. Here was another question I found interesting. He asked, who preached the Sermon on the Mount? He asked a representative sampling of folks. Who preached the Sermon on the Mount? And what he discovered, he said, was that, yes, Jesus was the most commonly given answer. And that's a correct answer. I'm sure you know that. But the second most commonly given answer is Billy Graham. (laughs) And Barna said, even though he's no longer alive, over the last 10 years, Billy's been closing the gap. Think about that. 69% of all Americans can't name the four Gospels in the New Testament. 69%, that's almost 7 in 10 82% of all Americans believe that the the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is in the Bible. It's not. I'm sure you know that. And what makes it even more distressing is that 80% of the people who identify themselves as born-again Christians gave the very same answer. So that there's virtually no difference between born-again Christians and those who are marginal as far as the understanding of the Bible is concerned. So what I want to do this morning is a little bit different than the way I normally approach preaching. What I want to do this morning is seek to answer some very basic questions people have about the Bible. And then I want to issue a plea. I am not, I, I am not beneath begging I am not above begging. I will do whatever it takes. These are the FAQs, if you will, the frequently asked questions people have about the Bible. Number one, what's in the Bible? And by that, I mean what is the content of the Bible? Number two, what's a good Bible to read? There are lots of translations out there, tons of translations, in fact. Thirdly, what's the purpose of the Bible? What is it that the Bible seeks to to accomplish? And finally, number four, is it okay to question the Bible? Or is it okay to question parts of the Bible, which inevitably leads to the question, is it okay to question God? Is that okay? So let's get started. What's in the Bible? I'm going to be very basic here and assume nothing. You may remember at the very beginning of the year, I said that this year I'm not going to make any assumptions about what people know, and I want to stay with that. I know that the information I'm about to share with you is plowed ground for lots of you, but please just indulge me if you don't mind. The Bible, your Bible, the Bible, is composed of 66 books, and they're grouped into two distinct sections. The first distinct section is known as the Old Testament. 
This section includes 39 of the 66 books of the entire Bible, three-quarters roughly of it. Now, what does that mean, Old Testament? What does that mean? Old Testament here can be translated and better understood as contract or covenant or agreement. The word covenant literally means agreement. In other words, the Old Testament, your Old Testament, is the old way God sought to relate himself to human beings. The Old Testament, in, in order that human beings might know God, <clears throat> the old agreement, the old way, the old way of understanding God. And the Old Testament is primarily a chronological history of God's attempt to relate to human beings and human beings' struggle to relate to God. That's it. It was written, the Old Testament was written over a period of about 1,500 years, so we're not talking about a narrow slice of time. We're not talking about a very few people who wrote the books of the Old Testament. We're talking about a long period of time and a, a lot of authors involved the Old Testament. There are three principal parts of the Old Testament. There, the first part is known as the law. The law. Our Jewish brothers and sisters talk about the Torah. The word Torah literally means instruction. That's the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the law. It's also known as the Pentateuch. You, the word penta meaning, meaning five. This is where you're going to find the creation account, and this is where you're going to find how God chose the Hebrew people as the people through whom he would work, the first five books of the Bible. The first five books of the Bible contain the Ten Commandments given to Moses, and ultimately to the Hebrews, and finally to us. The Old Testament, the first five books specifically, contain various ceremonial commandments and early history. The second primary section of the Old Testament is known as the prophets. So there's the law, and there is the prophets. Now, the prophets contains books of history. The history of the creation of the nation of Israel. The history of the creation of Israel and Judah and the Jewish people. It goes on to have books by individuals known as prophets. Now, let me interject a point of clarity here this morning. In the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament, you will hear two words that often people use interrelatedly. You'll hear the word prophet and you will hear the word priest. In the Bible, a prophet was one who spoke to the people on behalf of God. That's the best way to understand who a prophet was. One who spoke to the people on behalf of God. We hear things in books of the prophet like, Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. When God wanted to communicate with his, with his people, he did that through men and women known as prophets. A priest, on the other hand, spoke to God on behalf of the people. So a prophet speaks to the people on behalf of God. And the priest speaks to God on behalf of the people. The priest is the one who entered the Holy of Holies and made atoning sacrifices for the people of Israel. That was the priest. Now, 
Back to the prophets for a second. When the Bible speaks of a prophet, it does not mean fortune teller. A prophet is one who speaks for God clearly and accurately. The Old Testament prophets. The third and final section of the Old Testament is known as the writings. So you have the law, you have the prophets, and you have the writings. And that's basically everything. The writings are basically everything that's not law or prophets. The two principal towering books of the writing section are first Proverbs. Proverbs is filled with, with little pithy sayings, aphorism about what it means to be wise. What does it mean to be a wise person? <clears throat> and then the book of Psalms, which is actually a compilation of about 150 hymns, or 150 chapters in it. Psalms was, in fact, the first hymn book of the early Hebrew people, Psalms. And the Psalms are filled with honest expressions to God that range all the way from praise to th and thanksgiving to anger and hurt and confession of sin. Runs the full gamut. So that's the Old Testament. 39 books covering about 1,500 years. But the Old Testament, as practical and helpful and useful as it was and still is, wasn't enough. So we have the new covenant, the old covenant. We have the new covenant, the new agreement, the new testament. The new way of knowing God, <clears throat> not based on a contract, but based on a relationship. A relationship between the Son of God, Jesus Christ, and His people. That's the major difference. There are two primary categories in the New Testament. <clears throat> There is first the Gospels. You know the Gospels, don't you? Right? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. The best way to understand the Gospels is simply this. The Gospels are biographies of Jesus. That's it. If you want to start reading the Bible, if you want to just begin somewhere... I encourage you that the best place to start is by reading about Jesus, his, his life, his miracles, his death. Those are the things found in the first four books of your New Testament. The second major part of the New Testament are the letters. Sometimes you'll hear the word epistle. That's not the first cousin to an apostle. Epistle simply means letter. Letters written to individuals. Most of them, by the way, written by the Apostle Paul. If there are 39 books in the Old Testament, there are 66 total in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, that means there are 27 in the New Testament. 13 of the 27 books in the entire New Testament were written by Paul. Which means almost half of the New Testament was written by Paul. And his letters primarily were written to churches to teach them how to conduct themselves. There are two books in the New Testament that fall into neither category. They are neither gospel and they are not epistles. They are not letters. There are two books. One is the book of Acts. The book of Acts is the um, account of the early church. How did the early church began, begin? When you want to hear about the Pentecost account... 
People here talk about Pentecost. When you want to read about the Pentecost account, go to Acts, look in chapter 2, and that's where it is. And then there's the book of Revelation, of course. The book of Revelation is apocalyptic, isn't it? It has all kinds of, of, of information in it. People have a hard time with the book of Revelation, but I want to go ahead and spoil the end of the story for you. The end of the story is God is going to win. God is going to win. Now the second question is, what's a good Bible to read? My answer to that is this. A good Bible for you to read is a Bible that does two things primarily. First of all, you need a Bible you can understand. It does you no good, absolutely no good. It might look, like, might look good on the coffee table, but it does you no good to read something you don't understand. The King James Version of the Bible is beautifully written, but it's very difficult to understand. The King James Version of the Bible was written in 1611, and people talk differently then than they do today. And contrary to popular belief, the King James Version is not the version Jesus used. My personal opinion is that if you put a King James Version in, in, in the hands of your children and you have them read that and they read thou and thee and begat and whithersoever, my observation is that you are unconsciously teaching them that God and God's Word are old-fashioned and out of date. That's my opinion. And nothing could be further from the truth. First of all, you need a Bible you can understand. I've seen bumper stickers. I see all kinds of bumper. I get lots of good sermon ideas and bumper stickers, by the way. I saw a bumper sticker the other day that said, if it ain't King James, it ain't Bible. You need a Bible you can understand. Do you have a Bible you can understand? Secondly, you need a Bible that will help you apply the teachings of Christ. You need a Bible that will help you put into practice what it teaches. I use, I personally use the New Revised Standard Version of the Bible. I use it to teach with. I use it to research with. I use it to preach with. I've used it for years and years and years. That's what I use but there are lots and lots of great, great versions. There's a version known as the message out there. Eugene Peterson wrote the message. It's a powerful version of the Bible. It has more of a contemporary language. I want to recommend the message to you. My observation is the message is understandable and accurate in its translation. It's very helpful in applying the teachings of Christ. You need a Bible that will aid you in connecting. Listen carefully. <clears throat> you need a Bible that will en enable you to connect what you believe with how you behave. Because there's a great disconnect in our world on that, isn't there? There's a lot of things we say we believe, but how we behave is differently. And other than, you need a Bible that will aid you in connecting what you profess with what you practice day in and day out. That, I think, is what the Message Bible does. It does a good job with it. 
A third version of the Bible is the NIV, the New International Version. It happens to be the most popular version and translation. It's a very, very good one. But again, friends, find you a Bible you can understand what it's saying, and it's a Bible that helps you apply the teachings of Christ to your life. Use that. Use those questions when you're looking for a Bible. Which leads me to my third question. What is the purpose of the Bible? What is the purpose of the Bible? Friends, the Bible seeks to accomplish two things, principally. First, the Bible's purpose is to help you and me believe in and belong to Jesus Christ. The purpose of the Bible is to help us believe in and belong to Christ. The Word of God is here to show you the way to salvation, which is through faith, by the grace of God in Jesus. Another way for me to say it is the Bible is meant for transformation, not simply information. Now listen very carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Lots and lots and lots of people know lots and lots of things about the Bible, but do not know Jesus. That is a fact. There are people who can recite you all kinds of things about the Bible, but the purpose of the Bible is not just information, it's transformation. In fact, there's a passage in John's Gospel that says, these words are written so that you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that through believing you may come to have life in his name. But the second principal purpose of the Bible is this. Wisdom for daily living. Teaching you how to live daily as God's people. The passage you heard me read from this morning said, Every part of Scripture is useful. It's useful for truth and rebellion and mistakes to train us how to live. That's the version I was reading from. So the purpose of the Bible is to tell us what to do and what not to do. I'm going to say that again. The purpose of the Bible is to tell us how to live and how not to live. It teaches us how to live daily as God's people. Remember, I told you a few weeks ago, Jesus never told us what to feel. He told us what to do. Jesus never told us what to feel. He told us what to do. So which leads me, I think, maybe, maybe to the most important question, and that is, and it's where lots of people are, is it okay to question the Bible? I don't know about you, but I've heard people over the years tell me, I grew up in a house where they said, you never question God. Never question God. Everything, everything that happens is God's will. You believe that? Everything that happens is God's will. I think if you read the Bible, it is very clear that it's okay to question the Bible. And it's okay to question God. 
All of the heroes of the Bible, all of the hero, heroes of the Bible at one point or another questioned God. <clears throat> Moses questioned God. David questioned God. Jeremiah questioned God. The Apostle Paul questioned God. And Jesus questioned God. The giants of the Bible at one time or another overtly questioned and so, if they did, you may know that God is big enough to handle your questions. That went over pretty quickly. I want to say it again. If the great giants of the Bible questioned God, you can know that God is big enough to handle your questions. I said to you some time back, it's not the people that question things that bother me. It's the people who never question anything that bother me. They just buy into everything without examining. No, you see, our faith is a faith of the heart and the head. In fact, what we very find, often find is this. When people have gone through a season when they've questioned God, when they've gone through a season when they wondered why God was doing something, very often they come out on the other side with a stronger faith than they had when they went in. Have you ever questioned God? Would you admit it if you did? Have you ever wondered, God, why are you doing this? I mean, if you're really God, why are you allowing this? And then you hear voices say, you should never question God. I'm here today to tell you, God is big enough to handle our questions. Your faith may very well be stronger when you've questioned God. So is it okay I think the Bible makes it clear that it's okay. I want you to know that this book is, again, the book of the church. It is the book of the church. Here's what I believe, okay? I believe that if this book says do it, you do it. I believe that if this book says you don't do it, you don't do it. I believe that this book teaches me how to live. Do I realize this book was written by human beings? I do. But I want you to know that if I'm going to choose a foundation upon which to build my life, it's not going to be the foundation of popular opinion. If I'm going to choose a foundation upon which to build my life, I'm going to build it on this book. This is the book of God's people. And I fully realize that people question it differently and people understand it differently. But I'm just here to today to tell you I don't understand everything in it, but I do believe everything in it. I love the way Franklin Graham says it. He says, I don't know everything in there, but I believe everything. I, I believe it too. So let me close by saying this. My dad died when he was 59, 59 years old. He died of cancer. <clears throat> I was a young associate 
straight out of seminary. They sent me to a big church where I could learn how to do, do ministry because they didn't want to let me loose on the church to begin with. So I went to be a young associate, and my second year there, my dad died. Now, the, sing, the person who was teaching me the most, the person who was my mentor, the person who was guiding, the person who was directing, when my dad died, I told God, I quit. I'm done. This is who you are. I don't want any part of it. I am done. Because I was angry. I was hurt. I was afraid. What does it feel like to have your foundation ripped from under you? I was afraid. But I was fortunate enough to have a pastor who was my senior pastor, sit me down and say some things to me that literally saved me for what I do. He told me, some things that happen in this world aren't God's fault. We live in a broken world where bad things happen to good people. You do realize that, right? We, we live in a broken world where, where people who deserve it least get hurt the most. You do realize that, right? And you need to understand that life is not about one isolated event, he said to me. He said, I'll tell you what. Just give it a little time. Give it a little time and see what God can do with it. I am here today to tell you that is probably the reason I'm here. Because I learned that sometimes, sometimes God takes painful endings and makes them wonderful beginnings. Sometimes God takes things that hurt so much and he brings good from them. I want you to know I've questioned this book. I've been angry at God. I have fussed at God. I didn't understand. But I'm here today to tell you it is my book. And I invite you to make it yours as well. So here's my plea, okay? My plea is this. Get you a Bible that you can understand. Start reading in the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Pick one. Fine with me. I would start with Luke, but you can pick one. I, find you a Bible. Begin to read it. Get a devotional time each day. Do you have a devotional time every day? Do you have a time in the morning or a time in the evening when it's just you and God? Do you have that? How many of you realize that if you don't make time for it, you won't have time for it? You know, life gets busy, doesn't it? Make time 
for a devotional. Make time to just spend with God. And I promise you, if you will give it time, God will bring transformation to you. I believe it with all my heart. And so today, as we close our worship service, the invitation is going to be a little different. This is not an invitation where I'm asking you to ask God to forgive you of something. This is not an invitation where I say, come and kneel here and just ask God to take it away from you, take it away from you. This is an invitation where I'm asking you to pray for God to give you something. For God to give you a sense of desire to read his word. It is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So as we close our worship this morning, I'm just going to invite you, if you can pray where you are, if you want to kneel and pray, I invite you to do that. But I want to invite you to ask God to give you a renewed passion for his word. So we're going to have the musicians come and play. It always scares me when I turn around and they're not there. (laughs) And I'm praying, thank you, Jesus. There they are.